0: Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Luke chapter 1 is where you need to be. Today we're going to begin a brand new series in the Gospel of Luke. And during the series, we're going to immerse ourselves in Luke's story. We're going to be walking through this story uh, verse by verse, uh, as, we, as we often do in our understanding of the scriptures. And while we immerse ourselves in this story, we're going to take notes along the way. Uh, as for this morning's message, we're going to cover the announcement of the birth of King Jesus. We're going to look at... The birth of, or the announcement of the birth of his forerunner, John the Baptist. We're going to highlight several things throughout that text. As we walk through it, there will be some things that I believe will be of help to you as you understand God better, as you understand our faith better. But I hope to focus on one key issue, and uh, that key issue is highlighted in the title of the message. It's in your program, but the message title today is Faithful Questions, and I've kind of uh, adapted that title or expanded that title to call it Faithful Questions, the Difference Between Doubt and Inquiry, the Difference Between Doubt and Inquiry. This idea of doubt, this idea of asking questions of God is a very, very important matter to a whole lot of people. Maybe you're the kind of person that struggles with big doubts. You're the kind of person that says, there's days when I wonder if God is there, okay? That, that That is a real thing. People struggle with that. They wrestle with that. And those things aren't to be treated lightly. Okay, Even in the church, they aren't to be treated lightly. Maybe you're uh, the person that struggles with, um, with details about how God does a thing. Okay, uh, the, Oftentimes, here's what I found, that people who believe that they're doubting big doubts are actually simply doubting how God carried out what he carried out. Uh, Take the creation debate. Uh, There are a lot of opinions in the creation debate. That is one of those examples of something where if your heart is in the right place, what you're asking is, how in the world did this happen? What you're asking is, I understand what the text says, but I'm wondering about all these other voices that are talking as well. The idea is a humble question that says, I'd really love to know how this all played out. There is a wrong way to doubt, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, but many people think that that their questions of how God does a thing are actually the big doubts of this world, and actually, as I see it, they are matters of understanding. They're matters of growing in truth, and we need to be welcoming of that inside of the church. Uh, If you cannot go to your pastor, if you cannot go to the church when you struggle with doubts, who are you going to go to? Just think about that. Who are you going to go to? You're going to run to the world, and guess what? The world's going to disciple you. The world's going to disciple you. The world's going to tell you, here is what our doctrine espouses. Here is what we believe. And so it's really important. These concerns are concerns for a whole lot of people. There are those in the church that believe that if, uh, if you have doubts, you're, you shouldn't, okay? <laughs> you should not have doubts. And if you do, you should never vocalize those doubts. Keep it quiet, right? Why? Why? Because somebody misquoted James and says, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And they missed what was being spoken of. And we're going to actually pick that apart at the very end of the message when all of this turns to application and all of this turns to how you ought to approach your wrestles or your challenges of faith. On the other hand, there are those who would have you believe that doubt can never be fully overcome. Okay? There are many who believe that doubt can never be fully overcome, that you must always hold faith and doubt in tension. that was just the way it was supposed to be. Both of these are extremes, and both of these are false. Both of these are extremes, and both of these are dead wrong. How we handle our doubts and uh, how we handle our doubts is what is vitally important as Christians. And here's the three steps to how you handle your doubt. Number one, you have to be honest about your doubts. Honesty is the best policy. You should state your struggles. That's the first thing that you should do. Number two, we ought to seek an answer. How many of you want to find the answers to your tough questions? Show of hands. How many of you want to find the answers to those tough questions? Okay, we ought to seek to understand. But this is the real kicker, and this is where you can start to find out whether or not people really are genuine in their doubts or genuine in their pursuit. When God gives us an answer, we, we need to trust his answer, right? I have friends of mine that have been uh, atheists or agnostics all my life, and I characterize their life in this way. They seek to seek. They love to seek. They love exploring new avenues and new answers and new ways and new ideas, but they never will settle with something that is absolute or something that is true. And of course they say, but who can know what is absolute? And my response to most of my agnostic or atheistic friends is simply that they are a product of a postmodern culture that believes there are no absolutes. And every time we do that, we go into asking whether or not 2 plus 2 equals 4 every time. Okay, And so there are struggles inside of that, right? There are doubts, but we need to follow these processes. They're important processes, right? Honesty about your doubts, you ought to seek to understand, and when God gives an answer, you need to listen to that answer. You need to obey that answer. Now, if you're the kind of person whose doubts can never be satisfied, like my friends, my atheistic or agnostic friends, I am 100% willing to have a conversation with you, but I'm not talking to you today. I'm talking to those who are willing to come to the table with a measure of humility. In Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, we see an example of this kind of, I'm not looking for an answer approach. <laughs> how many of you know that? You've, you've taught, how many of you have kids? How many of you know when your kids really want an answer or not? Yes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Same thing happens with people in their doubts. And so you know when people are this way. In Luke 20, verses 1 through 8, the Pharisees were questioning Jesus' authority. And here is the difference in their hearts and ours if we're being humble. They didn't want an answer. They didn't actually want Jesus' answer. As soon as he told them very clearly, I am the son of God, all they wanted to do was trump up charges on him and put him on a cross. We know this from the rest of the text. They don't want an answer. So Jesus asks them a question, and what does he do that for? He wants to reveal their faulty motives. And after he reveals their faulty motives, Jesus does something that hippie Jesus, that is the Jesus that the modern culture has invented, hippie Jesus would never do. He walks away. Sorry, you don't want an answer. I'm moving on. Now, he doesn't just move on kindly either. Jesus moves on, and he tells a parable that basically sets a firestorm, which is how Jesus is. And so... When you, when you wrestle with some of the messages that I provide, just let you know, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Anyway, okay. So I couldn't even get that out with a straight face. This is really important. If we're going to seek to understand, then, again, here's the steps. We have to be honest about our doubts. We have to be genuine seekers. We have to seek to understand. And three, we have to accept God's word as our answers. As a dad, I've told my girls many times that they are free to ask questions of me anytime and about anything. My girls are allowed to ask questions anytime and about anything. They're even allowed to ask questions about dad's behavior, dad's calling things into question, dad's statement stupid when he says it, right? This is our new one. We're trying to eradicate that from our house. That is hard. I hope you know this. That is really hard. But when I, for me, okay, Tina, I don't, I, don't need, I don't need the heckling from the front row, okay? So stupid is a hard one. Another one that's really hard, this is the one I got called out for just the other day, is shut up, right? Because we say that in a sarcastic or a joking way, don't we? We're like, shut up, or we, whatever it is, okay? But... I say it, and we want our girls to not say that, especially to each other, okay? Because that's all you hear from the other room. Shut up, right? No, 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 no. We're not doing this, right? So daddy's at the breakfast table. Daddy says, shut up. And Sam goes, oh, <laughs> right? I'm like, really? That's what, that's what I got? This okay. I told you you could question me. So I've told my daughters all the time, you can ask me questions, but here is what they're prohibited from doing. They're prohibited from questioning me. You can ask me questions all the time, but questioning is very different because questioning has at its core accusation. Most of you know the difference in what I'm talking about, but just in case there's any confusion, I want to give you a scenario, and in this scenario, there's going to be a response to both scenarios, to both, both uh, situations, and I want you to tell me which one's more palatable. So just imagine you're a mom, you're a dad, maybe that's not hard to imagine, but imagine you're a mom and you're, or you're a dad, you have a child, and you have a really busy, hectic work schedule this week. And you say to your child, you say, it's going to be a really heavy work week, I'm going to be working to the wire, I'm not going to have one moment to spare, but when I come home on this day, we're going to go out for ice cream together, just you and me, Okay? That's the scenario. That's what you do. Scenario number one or example number one, your child responds to you and says, prove it. Responds with number one, I'll believe it when I see it. Some of you have had this response from your children. Let me put it into a question form, but it's still questioning your integrity. How do I know you're telling me the truth? Okay, there's, there's scenario number one. Scenario number two, You tell your child that you're going to be working a busy week. It's going to be hectic. You're going to invite them to ice cream at the end of the week. You're going to take them out. It's just going to be you and them. And they look at you and they say, how are you going to manage that, Dad? How are you going to manage that, Mom? You know the difference in those questions? You notice the difference in the heart behind that? I think it's obvious. The second response is far more palatable, far more acceptable. Why? Because the first one's loaded with insinuations. The first one's got accusations. It's got got all kinds of implications to it. Your child's response implies that you've either let them down in the past or that they can't trust your word, and maybe they can't trust your word because you've let them down in the past. And so they say these things, and it really becomes challenging or hurtful. Meanwhile, the second response may or may not contain those ideas. I would argue that sometimes it could. Your child might uh, have doubts about what's going on, but, in, but they, respond with, uh, they respond with humility, okay? Their response is one of humility. In both scenarios, the child may struggle. They may doubt. They may have ignorance. That's not a bad word, by the way. We want to eliminate the word stupid in our house as well, but uh, when somebody is ignorant of a thing, it's not bad. Maybe your child is ignorant of how it's going to play out. Maybe we're ignorant of how God's going to do a thing. That's okay. That's okay. And so we ask those questions, but in that second response, they are seeking to understand they have a right approach. We're going to see exactly how this idea plays out in the scripture today. And the two characters that we're going to follow are the characters of Mary, the soon-to-be in Luke 1, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus. And then we're going to follow Zacharias, who is going to be the soon-to-be father of John the Baptist. So these these are the scriptures, Luke 1, 1 through 38. And then we're going to jump to James chapter 1 when we get there. But I want you to follow along with me. And then I'll highlight on the screen uh, the two questions that we're going to be dealing with. So let's start off at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And again, as I said, we're going to stop by and check out the scenery along the way. Luke is writing here, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. The writer of the gospel, right off the bat, is Luke. Okay, Luke is a physician. We know this as per Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. He is a companion also of the Apostle Paul, which we learn from that epistle, as well as the entire work that he wrote after this gospel, which is called the Acts of the Apostles, or what we would call the Book of Acts. His purpose in writing this is very clear, and I want you to follow with me. His purpose is very clear. He states it at the outset, quote, to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. So what does he want to do here? He wants to compile the accounts. Here's why this is important, and this is really good for you to know how to study your Bible. He's compiling not just his eyewitness account, He's compiling other people's accounts. This is why scholars believe that Mark wrote the earliest gospel, John Mark wrote the earliest gospel, and that Luke is actually using much of Mark's accounts when he goes to write his particular account. None of that violates the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. None of that violates that because if Mark's account was inspired by the Spirit and Luke is using those accounts to compile this account, then great, double inspiration. I don't know how else to put that, right? So he is compiling the accounts. That is a really important first piece of this. But then he goes on and he says, I'm compiling the accounts of the things accomplished among us, that is actual events, miracles, signs, wonders, God's faithfulness, salvation, Gentiles being redeemed. From those who were, uh, Luke says, from the beginning. From the beginning. What does he mean by from the beginning? He means the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's compiling accounts from even Peter who's walked through this. From anybody who's seen Jesus up from the beginning. I would guess even from Mary as we're going to see in her responses, or Zacharias, if he goes to interview Zacharias. These are eyewitness testimonies. Now, here's why this is important in a message that deals or contends with doubt or ignorance. Much of the world says, why do you use the Bible? It's an antiquated book. It's old. You should throw that away. Or, if you use the Bible to argue for the reason for your faith, it's circular reasoning. This is not true. Why is it not true? Because the Bible is both eyewitness testimony as well as historical work. Okay? With eyewitness testimony and historical accounts, guess what that would be called in a court of law? Empirical evidence. And that is what we always make verdicts on. We judge a case by its evidence. And Luke feels that it's important. This is most likely why Luke goes into such detail. Luke finds it vitally important to record an account of empirical evidence for the future and, in particular, for this man named Theophilus. So, we see it was written from the beginning. It's eyewitnesses and servants of the, uh, servants of the word. This account is also then written and passed off to another person. Why? 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 Well, we see that in verse four. It says, so that you will know the truth about the things you have been taught. How many of you would like to know more of the truth about the things you've been taught? How many of you like saying, well, mom always told me that, so I'm just gonna go with it. I don't need any reason for it. I'm just gonna wing it. Well, let me tell you this. If that's how you're going to live out your Christian life, would you come up against opposition, when you come up against doubts, people are going to say, pfft, Not a good reason. Mama's not a good reason. I need to know more. I need to understand more. Theophilus needed to understand more. And so Luke records this account. He writes this account. I believe that that is all very beautiful in our understanding of things. Which leads me to a brief point about faith. I've shared with you so many times what faith is faith is trust, and that is all. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 or Hebrews chapter 12, that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, doesn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And my statement is always this, faith has substance and faith has evidence, doesn't it? Now, I want you to understand the angle from which the writer of Hebrews is saying that. They're writing, that person is writing from the angle like that of James in his epistle. And that is that faith without works is dead. Faith has substance and evidence. If you claim to believe in Jesus, there will be substance and there will be evidence in your life. Because faith without works is dead. And just so you can kind of take uh, take. Uh, heart in my approach i love james i love the book of james i like the attitude the personality of james which is most likely why when i talk i talk pretty brashly about certain things james in his epistle said if you do this but not this you're a liar i love that guy he is absolutely amazing i mean he just punches people in the nose isn't that an amazing preacher No, you guys don't like that. Okay, so I'll go back. Okay, so James is one of those guys, okay? And this is very important. So when Hebrews is talking about faith, it's talking about faith having substance and evidence. That is your faith. It should have substance and evidence. But the Bible also is clear that the thing we have faith in has substance and it has been displayed through evidence. What those evidences are are what become challenging to people. Sometimes, just like the scenario I gave you earlier of a mom or a dad promising ice cream, some of the evidence is simply the Word of God, the promise of God. That is evidence. That is something for you to place your faith or your trust in. The validity of that evidence is why we need to know that Luke's account is actually empirical evidence, because it's history. This is important. We have something that we really can rest on. It's not just some guy who found gold tablets in his backyard and made a cult out of it, okay? It's really, really important. So what we do is we walk after God because he has given us substance. He's given us evidence. He's given us hope, and we put our trust in that hope, right? You guys have all seen that uh, illustration many times. So this is a really important piece when it comes to our doubts, Because there is substance, there is evidence, and that is what we're trying to get at. So we have a place to rest our faith. Verse 5, Luke goes on. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. I love that line there. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. She knows the story of Jewish history, trust me, okay? And so does Zechariah. But her name was Elizabeth. Verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God. Huh, that's an amazing line right there. It's an amazing line. They were both righteous in the sight of God. But just in case you're wondering, Luke goes further in the explanation of these people. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and requirements of the Lord. Did you know that people did that? Yes. When Paul comes on the scene and says, no one is righteous, no not one, please don't think that what Paul is saying is nobody ever got anything right. These guys, this is inspired scripture. It's not even them telling you this about themselves. This is Luke telling you about them. So you can call God a liar if you'd like to do that. That's your prerogative. But what I'm getting at is people walked in this. When Paul comes on the scene and says, no one is righteous, no, not one, he meant no one has a status before God that is of their own making. You cannot stand before God unless it is by grace through faith. Did you know that? And Zacharias and Elizabeth lived that life. When Paul comes on the scene and says, according to the law, I was faultless, he wasn't joking. He wasn't joking. He was really good at keeping the the checkboxes inside of his life. But that didn't mean he knew Jesus. As a matter of fact, on the road to Damascus, we know he didn't. Lord, Lord, he says, this is Jesus whom you're persecuting. Who are you, Lord? This is Jesus whom you're persecuting. He didn't even know the God that he supposedly served. Verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. Now that That story sounds very familiar. It sounds like Abraham and Sarah both advanced in years and Sarah being barren. Okay, servants of God, similar story. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And this was a common act to be done. Now, just... Walk through the heritage of this. Elizabeth and Zacharias both clearly knew the story of Abraham and Sarah because they were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? These guys come in line later. So they knew the story of Abraham and Sarah. They also no doubt knew the story, and here this is important, Elizabeth no doubt knew the story of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, right? Do you remember this story? They burned strange fire... It happens to be incense. It happens to be taking fire from where they're supposed to take it from. Argument is they didn't take it from the right place or maybe they mixed the incense wrong or whatever, but God said that they burned strange fire, which was to treat him as holy. They burned strange fire and he killed them. There's a positive message for a Sunday morning. So he slaughters these guys because they're doing it wrong. They were not listening to what he says. Both these stories, Abraham and Sarah and Nadab and Abihu, are absolutely known by these people. Make no mistake. Okay, So in verse 10 it says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense offering. Because that was common with Jewish practice. They prayed during this hour. Zacharias was troubled when he saw, verse 11, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Now with that understanding of Nadab and Abihu being struck by God, can you imagine what you'd do if an angel popped up while you're burning incense? You're going... Not enough cumin? I, what, what's happened here, right? You, you don't know what's happening, okay? So he's panicking in this situation. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But we're going to see that the angel says the same thing to Mary in just a second. So maybe she was filled with that fear too. But verse 13 says, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John." You will have joy and gladness, and many, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, yet while in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, so the Jews there. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the Spirit, before Jesus in the Spirit, and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, the angel comes, Zacharias is scared to death, the angel says, I heard your prayer about having a baby. You're going to have a baby, but it's not just going to be any baby. This guy's going to be crazy. So he gives him this crazy baby, okay, or this promise of a crazy baby, and Zacharias responds to this, the angel of the Lord, this way. He says, How will I know this for certain? How will I know this for certain? Okay? Now, to prove to you that there was doubt in that, that it was questioning of God and not a question, we have to look to the angel's response. But Zacharias goes on and says, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I'm an angel, idiot. No, he didn't say that. Okay, okay. I got I to gotta quit using that word too. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Okay, I think I, think I would have second-guessed my question at that point. But I'm not sure I would have asked it with this giant angel standing there, right? Verse 20, And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Verse 21, The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. I mean, Maybe God killed him, <laughs> okay? But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had, been, he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Now, this is going to be interesting here. Verse 23, when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. Do you know how, do you know how long Zacharias was silent? The entire pregnancy. He was struck. (laughs) Too many women are laughing right in this moment, okay? And that's why this is actually a very serious matter. So women, listen up, right? After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, Now, I don't know if this praise because there was a baby or praised because her husband was quiet for nine months. But she says, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me (laughs) to take away my disgrace among men. It was not about the silence of her husband. So get over it, okay? Anyway, it was about a baby. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Zacharias is doubting God. He's doubting the messenger. He's doubting the word. He says, prove it. That's what Zacharias effectively said to the angel. And guess what? God actually disciplines this righteous man who is devout in all his ways along with his wife. He does that. Zacharias struggled in his faith. But there's an important piece about faith and this story that you need to understand. His faith didn't matter at all in the outcome of God's promise. Baby was still coming, whether Zacharias believed it or not, because God didn't care. God was bringing about a beautiful, beautiful story. Now, let's parallel that with Mary, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, same angel, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, no doubt why 29 is said. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of a salutation this would be. Okay, Now, in the church today, people walk around all the time saying, I'm blessed and highly favored. (laughs) She was actually caught off guard by that. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. So she's confused about this response or this statement of the angel. And it says in verse 30 that she was afraid. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Obviously, she has a file folder for all of what that means. She's also a descendant of David too. So, so we see that she has a file folder for all of these, all of these great promises. Mary's response. Mary said to the angel, it's a question again, but she's actually asking a question. How can this be since I am a virgin? Now I want you to parallel these two questions really quick. The first question is How do I know this for certain? Interpret that question. How do I know your word is true? It's one, that's one question. How do I know your word is true? The second says How are you gonna work it out? I, I, we may not be in a scientific age back in Jesus' day, but I know how biology works. I got the birds and the bees talk. I understand that. How is this going to work? I'm actually a virgin. The angel's response to her proves that it wasn't doubt in her question. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He explains the mission, the plan. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of God, may it be done to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Here is the important piece that we need to come away with this come away with with this text of scripture. And that is all rooted in our doubts and in our questions. It has everything to do with the heart that you come to God with. If you are a Christian, and it does not matter your age, it does not matter your pedigree, it does not matter how long you've gone to church in your life, if you come to God with humility, with an honest approach that says, here's what I'm struggling with, Lord. I don't know how this works out. Here's what I'm struggling with. After that humility, you you vocalize that doubt. You're very clear in your doubt, right? You seek to understand and say, I need to know the result of this. I need to know how this is supposed to play out. And if your heart is in such a position that when God offers an answer, you say, although I may not fully understand it, although I may not be bold about it enough to preach it today, I trust your word. If that is your approach, there is no doubt that God is scared of. There is no doubt that God is scared of. There is no question that he is scared of. Mary is talking about, I know that this is a weird way of looking at this, but Mary, if we reverse engineer this whole thing, Mary is calling into question the core doctrine of the virgin birth and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And God doesn't say whatever because she didn't question him she asked him she said I don't know how this happens I mean I'm a virgin and and you know this but I'm gonna trust what you say right do you see what she's doing but with Zacharias he does what many Christians today do and many in the world do and that is that God says something plain and clear he says it plain and clear and we go how do I know that's true How do I know that's true? Do you realize that you're keeping wrong company in that place? You see, your doubt and your inquiry there is not pleasing to God. It is all about the heart from which, or, uh, yeah, from which you approach this situation. If you're a person in the church today and you struggle with uh, creation versus evolution, not gonna tell you that any answer is okay. But what I am gonna tell you is that you need to seek God and you need to search his heart and ask him what he says and then put your trust in it. If you're a person who struggles with God's definition of sexuality for his covenanted people, it is okay for you to say, God, look at what the world says. Look at what the world is doing and look at what they talk about. They talk about love and and who am I to judge who can love who? Who? But your heart has to come to it and say, but God, what you say is what I want. What you say is what I will put my trust in. None of those doubts, none of those scenarios will ever necessarily lead you to a place where you just have all the confidence in the world. Where you walk around going, I proved it for myself. I don't care what your problems are. Or any kind of boldness like that. You're not going to be arrogant is what I'm trying to get at church you're going to seek after God's answer and you're going to trust it you may not know why in your life how many of you have questions of God and you don't you say I don't know why God did this or that in my life come on show everybody that this is a real thing I don't know why he did this in my life that does not mean that you don't believe God is it doesn't mean anything of the sort And listen, if doubts and questions were supposed to be eradicated by finite beings, then we wouldn't be finite anymore, would we? It's so funny that the church has no tolerance for questions. No tolerance for issues, for struggles, for those kinds of things. Has no tolerance for those things. Because here's the core belief. Here's the story the church believes. The story that the church believes is that you can't have those doubts because once you come to Jesus, you got everything figured out. You're perfect. You're now infinite in your wisdom. Show of hands, how many of you know that you don't know a whole lot of stuff? Amen. It's really important to understand that we can come to God with our doubts and with our questions, but we have to be honest to start. We have to really want to find an answer, and we have to trust the answer when it's given. I, I'm not going to get the statement right, I don't believe, but somebody said that, once said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been tried, found difficult, it has been found difficult and left untried, okay? Okay? Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been left, it has been found difficult and left untried. Here is what happens in the church at large today. And yes, this happens here too. Talking to the big C and I'm talking to you if you struggle with this. You see what God plainly says about sexuality and you don't like it. Fine, it's difficult. It's difficult. I'll sit and talk to you all day about the difficulties of it. We can walk through our understanding. We can walk through what the text says and how the words are to be interpreted. All of those things. We can sit and we can do this all day long. But trust me when I say, if you think that Christianity or if you think God's version of sexuality is difficult, so therefore it should be left untried, you're not fulfilling the three qualities that we see in Mary. You might be being honest. You might... Say you want to find an answer, but God has provided one and you don't like it. See, these need to be present. These need to be present for all of us. Here's another thing that needs to happen. The church needs to be more patient and gracious with each other. We need, I'm not talking with sin. I'm not talking with sin. With sin, you need to know what God says and stop. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be patient in the fact that you're being sanctified and we'll be walking together as we fight addictions and we fight struggles that we've dealt with in the past or whatever. I'll be patient and I'll be gracious with that. But I'm not going to be patient with that's not sin anymore. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. What I will be patient with, though, is if you say, man, I struggle with this. It's one of the hardest things I've ever read in the scripture. And I just don't know how that can be true. I don't know how that's true when everybody else in the world says, we can talk all day long. We can talk about that when it comes to any story that you believe. The story of how your household should be run. The story of how the church should be led. The story of how church discipline should be carried out. The story of how sexuality plays out. The story of how you should raise your kids. All of those are stories that we believe, church. And many of them are answered in the scripture. But they're challenging answers, aren't they? They're challenging answers. We look at it and we say, my goodness, in the 21st century, we seem like we're archaic. And God says, there's a reason why this is the answer. Because it is what is good. It is what is right. It is what is my plan, holy, set apart for you to walk in. But listen, we need to be more gracious with each other. We need to listen to each other's struggles, but here's what I want you to do if you're going to have doubts. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing that I ask my daughters to do. Ask a question. Don't come to the Bible questioning it. Don't go, how dare God? This is why the scripture says that God gives grace to the humble, but rejects the what? He rejects the proud. You don't challenge the infinite God with your finite awesomeness, (laughs) right? You're like, God, what do you know? What you ought to do is say, Lord, I I know that you know. I believe that you know. I just don't know why. I don't know why. How many of you have whys or how many of you have those questions? You just want to know why. I've asked this, but how many of you just want to know why? It's okay. Approach him with humility. Again, the threefold approach right? Be honest about your doubts. Ask questions. Don't question God. Really seek to understand. And then, if God gives an answer, and I would argue that he gives many, 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 many answers. There may be some things we might chalk up to mystery, but I think most are answered. In those answers, we need to trust God for what he says. So I said at the outset that many, many don't tolerate doubts or uh, the other half believe that doubts are just a natural byproduct or a natural piece of the church's life and that you must always hold them in tension. I don't believe that either of those extreme positions are correct. I believe that you will rise to a place where you have a new doubt because you learn more and you struggle with something, but God will answer that. And then that doubt is assuaged and you can move forward. But when it comes to the idea that, uh, that you should never vocalize your doubts and, and that makes you an unstable person in all their ways, I just want to end by showing you what James 1, 5 through 8 actually says. I want to show you what it actually says. Here's what James says. But he, this is the person that's coming, but he must ask, what? He must ask, not question, he needs to ask God right but he must ask in faith without any doubting well there it is Nathan I can't have a single doubt if I have doubt I'm not I'm unstable in this for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man unstable in all his ways The problem is that we read this and we fail to read the surrounding context. We fail to read the whole of what James communicates here. You see, the first approach to a doubting man is you have to believe that God is and that He will reward those who diligently seek Him. Isn't that true? That's what the Bible says. It's what James says. You have to believe that he is and that he will reward those who diligently seek him. The problem here is that the person who is supposedly asking has turned this around to not asking in faith. You must ask in faith, but this person is not asking in faith. And they have doubt because they don't believe God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is the problem in the church today. This was Zachariah's problem. I don't believe you can do it. I don't believe your word. You said it, I just don't believe it. Church, we struggle with this a lot. We struggle with this a lot. We're losing the cultural arguments. Can I just be candid with you right now? We're losing the cultural arguments. And the reason why we're losing the cult- cultural arguments, the reason why we're losing the cultural arguments is because we're waffling. <laughs> We're going this way and we're going that way. We believe this, we believe that. The church at large is espousing many different doctrines all at the same time. Church is standing up and saying, this is what God says about marriage. Other churches saying, nah, it's changed. Church is standing up and saying, this is what God says about leadership. And other churches saying, nah, it's changed. Church is standing up and saying, God told us how he created the heavens and the earth and those things. People saying, I don't think you can trust that. These are real struggles, but the church is on both sides of the fence. Do you know this? You know this, right? You know this, right? I'm not, this isn't lost on anybody. The church is on both sides of the fence, and guess what? We're double-minded, <laughs> unstable in all our ways, but the reason for that is because we know the answer and we refuse to believe it. And even if we're ignorant to understanding why, we don't go to God with a question seriously seeking an answer. We just go, okay, maybe my, maybe my friends are right. Maybe this is completely wrong. Maybe I need to just chuck all this stuff. The church is losing the cultural argument because we will not, we will not be bold and stand by faith. God said it, we must believe it. This Communicate something very clear for all of us. And that is that we believe a faulty story. Let me tell you what that faulty story is. Somebody other than God is God. The faulty story you're believing is that somebody other than God is God. You believe that the culture is the one who gives the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Or the billion commandments. Because trust me, there's no end to their regulations. The problem is we're believing a different story, in which, a story in which God is not on the throne. The story when God is on the throne is not an easy story, is it? It's not easy all the time. We face a culture who has real questions, real dilemmas, real issues. I have a friend, he'll remain nameless, Of a friend whose family member just shared with him as a matter of fact, it's his daughter, shared with him that she is bisexual or that she's gay. Until you've walked that road, you have no idea how hard it is to serve God, keep Him on the throne, and be okay. You can trust God, you can trust God, but then all of a sudden, those seeds of doubt come in and you start to ask questions What should we do? Be honest about our doubts. Seek to find an answer. And when God gives it, we should believe it. We should stand on it. We should walk in it. I sat with that friend as he talked to his daughter. I sat with that friend as he told his daughter the hardest thing that we all don't want to say. And that is, there is a problem with how you're living. There is a problem with this. And it is not pleasing to God. And he loves you. And he wants you to not do this. And it has effects. And you don't know those effects, but it has effects. And what did I see right there? I saw somebody who struggled. I saw somebody who sought God. And I saw somebody who knew that God's word said what it said, and he stood on that word. He was bold about it. He was loving, but he was bold about it, right? It's challenging what we're being asked to do. But there's two problems that are going on at the same time. One is boldness and conviction and walking in it. The other is being honest about our doubts. What I want you to end with or what I want you to walk away with today is that we need to be a people like Mary, the mother of Jesus. We need to be a people not like Zacharias. We need to be a people who, with honesty in our heart, profess our struggles, our doubts. How are you going to do it, Lord? We need to seek for an answer, and then when God answers, we need to respond like Mary answers. I love this response. She says, and behold, you shall, uh, no, down further, sorry. 38, and Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word, and the angel of the Lord departed from her. I need you to be honest with me, church. How many of you do struggle with doubts? Raise your hands. How many of you struggle with doubts? You got questions about things? How many of you have been discipled in a a model that says, don't speak those doubts. You're a double-minded, unstable person. Shut up, be quiet, do what God says, and don't even think about asking a question. Be honest with me. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard when when you're told, don't do this, you're unstable. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is concerned with your heart. Jesus is concerned with your heart and how you come to him. And we all need to come and say, I'm honest. I got some struggles. I got some things I don't understand, Lord. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to knock down that door until he answers and gives me a a good answer. And when he gives me that answer, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to trust it. And even if that answer makes me unloved, unwanted, unwelcome, not liked, I'm going to do that. There are, the majority of the people raise their hands. I hope you saw that. Majority of the people raise their hands that they have doubts. I want you to know this. This is my uh, my promise to you. You can talk to me about any of those doubts. Absolutely anytime. Absolutely anytime. Be humble about it, right? Be honest about your doubt. Seek to find an answer. And when we find an answer together, believe it with all your heart. Believe it with all your heart. We can win the cultural war. We can win the war. How do we win every war? Not by might, not by power, but by God's spirit, by the very thing he inspired, by the truth that he puts in our hearts and our lives. That's how we win. We win the war by doing what he said. It's an absolutely amazing truth. If we can have the worship team come on up. Our struggles with doubt are real struggles, church. They're real struggles. We just need to know what we are to do with them. Just like Mary, whose question looks similar. It's just not. looks similar to Zacharias's. We need to come to God, being honest with our concerns, seeking an answer, and accepting the answer we get. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at PiercePoint.org for more information.